Faith Memorial Church was founded in 1945 as Cleveland Evangelistic Center. A lot has changed since then, but one thing hasn't. Faith Memorial Church's passion for Christ and compassion for the people of our community. We're going to start out in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, as you guys well know by now. As you know, I believe that everything should begin and do and end with prayer. So we're going to start off the message by just praying and asking God to speak. Holy Spirit, this morning I am inviting you to come and to take my place. Lord, even on the best days, I am not fit to be able to be a vessel to communicate your word and truth. And today, even more so, I'm not fit. So, Holy Spirit, I'm just asking that you take my place and that you communicate through me a message that would truly incur a transformation in everyone that hears it. That you would truly do a work in this place. And God, I like the exciting stuff. I like the jumping and the running and the dancing. And I like, you know, the presence and the weight of your glory to fall. And I like for people to sing and to shout and to run. I love all of that stuff. But Lord, sometimes that stuff is superficial. Sometimes that stuff is surface level. And Lord, what I'm asking for is something so much deeper. Anyone can run and shout and go home exactly the same as they were when they walked in. But God, I'm asking that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would incur such a change in us that we may not even appreciate it in the moment. Lord, I think that sometimes some of the most beautiful things that you do are those moments when it seems perfectly natural or ordinary in the moment. But then when we leave, and the moments following and the days and the weeks following, we realize that something happened. Maybe something that we can't put our words on, maybe something that we can't put definitions to, but something happened. And God, that's what I'm praying this morning is that something happens. Something happens in our hearts and in our minds that goes beyond just simple observation of, yeah, that was a great service, but something transformative that takes us a little bit closer to being in a representation of the image of glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we have been doing a series on signs of a healthy church, and rather than going through this whole thing and telling you everything that we've preached up to this point, I just want to kind of go through and just give you a few of the highlights. So the first thing that I want to tell you is we started out and we kind of just said, hey, the journey itself is necessary. Going on a journey to discover what a healthy church is, is necessary. I mean, we could just meet week after week and have a great time and have fun and fellowship and, you know, occasionally have a good meal together, kind of like last week where you can load up a potato and have all kinds of toppings on it and just have a wonderful time. And that's fantastic. But is that what it means to be a church? And is that what it means to be a healthy church? Or is there more to it than that? And so... The journey itself and going in and discovering what a healthy church is, is necessary. But before you can even do that, you have to understand what it is to be a church. What is a church? And I gave you guys a simple definition that a church is a diverse yet unified assembly of believers that have surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
The reason that we define things is because in our culture, people are redefining words left and right. Faith was reading an apologetics book the other day, and she was reading a section in the book where they said that words had become a weapon that our enemies have taken, redefined without making a public announcement that they've redefined it, and then reusing our own words against us. And just listen to some of the cults and some of the false gospels and false religions out there. They'll take words like Jesus or Holy Spirit or heaven and hell and they'll redefine them and then they'll give them back to us and say, yeah, we're agreed on all these things. But really and truthfully, we couldn't be further apart. So defining words is absolutely necessary. And when I talk about a church being healthy, what we're really talking about is a church that exists in a realm of health that isn't this back and forth, back and forth cycle of a roller coaster ride where you're one minute down in depravity and the next minute on the heights of awakening and then right back and then right up and then right back. And that's the way the church has existed in large part for the last 2000 years, a revival and an awakening and then a long period of despair and depravity where the church goes further and further and further away from the truth of the gospel until it needs God to breathe a new awakening into it to wake it up. But I believe that there's the possibility of a church just getting to a place of being healthy. And it may not be boom, flash in the pan, exciting. But once you get there, what you begin to see is miraculous. I think about like, and I used this expression last week, about like a, a tree. And when a tree produces fruit, it may not be that exciting to sit there and stare at an apple tree, you know, until and watching it produce apples. But it's miraculous. It's miraculous to watch something that was a seed blossom into a plant and then produce fruit that you can eat and enjoy. And I think that a healthy church isn't necessarily just a church that has a flash, boom, great service and everybody's excited, although I love all of those things. But I think that there can be this almost miraculous, mystifying, gradual growth that can go almost unnoticed if you're not looking for it. And then before you know it, you look around and you see that there's fruit everywhere. And where there was empty seats, suddenly there's people. And where there were people that were in bondage, they're now free. And people that were far away are now carrying out ministry and serving the Lord and conducting His work. And it just becomes something that you almost take for granted because you don't realize how miraculously God is working, even when we're not watching. So that's that's my idea. That's my vision of a healthy church. Do I want awakening? Yes. But I don't think that it has to be just suddenly we come in and we have a great service and then everybody's excited. And then from then on out, we have one great service after another. That's cool. And that's fantastic. But I think what it's going to be is there's going to be like this gradual and then all of a sudden you're in an awakening and nobody even realizes what's going on and the parking lots are full and people are, I can't even fit in the door. And I'm not just talking about this church. I'm talking about churches all over because there's somehow the tide has shifted and God has shown up. And it's like um, Jacob and he says, surely God was in this place and I knew it not. That's what I believe a healthy church can be. And so we began to progress from there and to look, okay, what what is required? And God kind of set the stage, didn't he? He laid the foundation in the fear of the Lord. 
no other foundation can any man lay but that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And that is God's foundation that he wants to build his church upon. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's on Jesus Christ and the revelation of the person and work. Everything that he is and everything that he's accomplished. And that is what God is building his church on. But the true Jesus, not the interpretations or the opinions or the ideas of who Jesus is, the biblical revelation of who Jesus is, which is equally the fear of the Lord. If you really get an understanding of who Jesus is, it's not the uh, white, blonde-headed, weak-looking, almost feminine Jesus that we have in a lot of our paintings. It's Jesus Christ in the fullness. It's what John sees, and he falls at his feet as dead. That's the biblical portrait of Jesus, and that is what the church is built on. And then you have the vision, which, truthfully, is also Jesus. Jesus is the foundation, but he's also the roof. He encapsulates everything. And while one church's vision may be a little bit different or worded differently than another church's vision, in order for it to be a biblically accurate and grounded vision, it has to be centered around Jesus and the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every church, no matter who they are, if they're a biblical church, has one and the same mission. And that is to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. And then he gives us a promise, Lo, I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. That's the mission of every single church. The mission does not change. The vision or how we accomplish and carry out that vision can differ from one church to another. And personally, we have set our church's vision, or rather God has, as being Hello Cleveland, meet Jesus. That we want to know the community that we're a part of and learn how that we can best deliver and communicate the gospel to that community. That's the vision. That's the roof over our metaphorical house. And then we finally began to progress into the actual metaphor of the house itself or the signs of a healthy church. The first one was the truth, the word of God, the devotion to the apostles' teaching, a devotion to Scripture, a devotion to the Bible. And we define devotion as not just learning and not just living, but learning, living, and loving the word of God. And that truth builds our walls. It keeps certain things out and it keeps other things in. And then last week, we kind of began to get into what we call, I called intentional fellowship. Not just showing a picture of a small group and saying, hey, do this. But I I, I believe that our responsibility is to focus on the intentionality of getting God's structure and order right. And then the fellowship will be a byproduct of that. And that's kind of equatable to like the family living room or a family room. You know, in Hallmark cards, you always see the picture of like the living room with the cozy fireplace and the family sitting around having like a grand old time. And, you know, a lot of families don't function and look like that. (laughs) I mean, I know a lot of families that don't function and look like that. But there are families that do. And that is not just you cram all the family members in a room and say, hey, look like this Hallmark card. Imagine what would happen if you did that with some of the families that we have. I mean, it'd be war, wouldn't it? It'd be war. But if the certain people, the leadership of the family, the parents, the household, whatever, go about intentionally creating and setting structures and things in place, 
then that can be an automatic byproduct. You can't throw a family in a room together and say, hey, have a great time, and, it have, and then automatically have a great time. It doesn't matter how many times you say it, how loud you shout it, how great you do at communicating they need to have a great time. Whether or not they have a great time is going to be entirely dependent upon the intentionality and the things that have happened prior to that moment. So we get God's structure right. We focus on the intentionality and God will produce the fellowship. And it'll be an automatic and inevitable product or fruit of what we create here. Amen? So now we're going to go into the third sign of a healthy church. And if you guys have been following along and reading Acts 42, or 2, 42 through 47, you probably assume that it's going to be breaking of bread or prayers. But I'm going to take our allegory a little bit further. So I've been using the allegory of a construction site, right? The allegory, the metaphor of building a house. Well, one thing I know on the few construction sites that I've been on and the limited experience I have in that is that it's not always just a linear process. Oftentimes there's a lot of different contractors and subcontractors accomplishing various tasks. They all have one common goal to build the house or the building, but you may have a plumber there while you have a carpenter. You may have a finish worker while you have a decorator. You may have a painter, after, hopefully after the drywall <laughs> crew has already come in and finished. So there are certain prerequisites, but it's not just a start to finish this, 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 and this, and then the house is done. Sometimes there's processes that are going on simultaneously that are seemingly unrelated. And with that being said, I kind of wanted to skip ahead a little bit. And hopefully, as we carry the series out, it'll become a little bit more prevalent why? I want to talk about culture this morning. Now, this may not be a run and jump and shout message. Obviously, I'm not going to be running and jumping, shouting, unless God like strikes me with like this crazy, awesome bolt of healing, and then I'll do laps around the church. Okay, so if I kick the boot off and I do laps, then you know what happened. But pending that, I just I just want to get pastoral. Okay, that's what I said about the series. So, are you guys ready? Can we dig into the text? Can we get a little pastoral? So I'm going to read. <laughs> Praise God. Somebody's on board. <laughs> Acts 42 through 47. This is our blueprint. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to talk about culture. All right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Praise God. That's the goal to get to, the last verse. And the God adding daily. Culture. Culture is a word that we definitely have to define because depending on who you're talking to and what the context of the conversation is, it's going to mean something to somebody different. If I say culture, a lot of people are just going to think, well, you know, South Africa has one culture. Northern Africa has a completely different culture. You know, South America has one culture. Europe has a different culture. And Europe's culture can change depending on whether you're in a rural society or you're in a more metropolitan context. 
American culture is various changes. You know, I would dare say East Tennessee has a little bit of a different culture than Northern California. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, I'm I'm just throwing out spitball in there, but I would dare say that we have a different culture. I've have been blessed by God to have the opportunity to plant a church in southern Mississippi along the Gulf Coast, and that was one culture. And then northeastern central Pennsylvania planted a church, and that was a completely different culture. I have a good friend who's pl- uh, pastoring a church in Ithaca, New York, one of the most ri- liberal cities in the entire continental U.S., and he s- describes that culture, and it's completely different from anything I've ever experienced. So a lot of people, when you say culture, they would say it depends on where you live. And there's some truth to that. Other people would say you talk about culture. They would define it or relegate it to the system of the world and say culture is bad because that's the spirit of the world. And then you've got people that say that culture is something that's like the equivalent of like aristocracy. You know, you listen to the classical music like Beethoven and Mozart. You're cultured. You read the right books. You can quote Pride and Prejudice. You must be cultured. So there's a lot of definitions about culture, right? But I want to give you guys my definition, and it's going to be really simple, maybe even too simple. You guys like simple, right? (laughs) I I always say this. This is a quote of mine. You can take it. I don't care. But it says it's simply this. (laughs) simply this if you can't say something simply then you simply don't know it if you can't explain it simply then you simply don't know it so here it is culture made simple culture is who you are without trying it's who you are without trying look i am the product of the south i don't have to try to love sweet tea i love sweet tea to a fault I don't have to try to love barbecue. I don't have to try to like SEC sports, primarily football and baseball. I don't have to try to enjoy fried chicken. Although it's gluten and it does not enjoy me, I do not have to try to enjoy fried chicken. I don't have to try to mumble or fail to enunciate. That comes naturally. I sound like peanut butter whether I want to or not. (laughs) I don't have to try to leave the G off the end of my words and say fixin' instead of fixing or say I'm getting instead of getting. I don't have to try to believe that camouflage is on everybody's color wheel. <laughs> I'm serious. Like those things just come naturally. They're a part of who I am. I don't have to try to be conservative politically. I just am. Now some of that is because of my religious and spiritual convictions but some of it is just a product of the culture that i'm a part of see culture isn't bad or good it just is you know culture can be good you know we are a part of wesleyan holiness pentecostalism that's a lot of words that basically just means we're charismatic and pentecostal and we believe in salvation sanctification and spirit baptism But, you know, we have one of the things that marks us is we have like this radical avoidance of sin, like anything, like certain movies. If it's demoralizing, we're like, you know, certain music, (laughs) certain drinks, certain foods. Well, maybe not foods. (laughs) 
<laughs> I was just saying if you were paying attention. But we have this radical avoidance of anything that could be morally or spiritually compromising. And you say, well, that's just our interpretation of Scripture. And it is. But you know why we tend to interpret Scripture that way rather than another way? Number one, because the Spirit enables us to see and interpret His Word clearly. But there are other things that factor into why we see it that way and why we don't have to go through a lot longer of a process. Because being Pentecostals, we're, in part, of, we're part of a certain interpretive community, meaning that we have traditions and authorities and opinions that are passed down to us, and not all of those opinions are always correct. Certain Pentecostals believe things that simply aren't true. Certain Charismatics believe things that simply aren't true. And sometimes we have to deal with that and wrestle with those things because we're a part of that culture. And I use those examples because some of those things are good. So culture can be a force for good. But it can just as easily be a force for evil depending on what culture and who's working behind it. When the grace of God and the Spirit of God is working in culture, it's one of the most powerful tools on the planet. But when the Spirit of this world is working in and through it, it's one of the most destructive forces on this planet. Think about this. Think about social media and Gen Z. Gen Z is a fancy way of describing the upcoming generation. I'm just going to make that broad categorization. Gen Z, the upcoming generation, and how badly and how majorly social media affects that generation. Now, when the spirit of the world is in that, think about how destructive it is. People commit suicide and take their own lives, ending their physical existence because of social media and because of culture. Then people become ministers and use it to propagate the gospel and people get saved because of things that they see, reels or people preaching on TikTok or Instagram or whatever because of the pervasiveness of that culture. Used to be the marketplace was in downtown. You'd go downtown to a festival or to a store, the general store, and that was the meeting ground and that's where you could talk and have conversations with people. Now the marketplace is social media it's online and a church that doesn't take advantage of that is foolish because that's the new marketplace that's the new culture creator so do you see how incredibly pervasive culture is i use the example of being southern the way i talk the way i dress the way i think the associations that i make what i eat all of those things factor into the fact that I'm Southern. The culture literally affects and touches every area of my life. It's powerful. It's who you are without trying. You cannot intentionally be a certain culture. You can pretend, and you can do certain things because you like them, but that doesn't make them a product of that culture. You can't intentionally have a certain culture that you don't have. However, while you can't be intentional on the front end or on the back end, you can be intentional on the front end and cultivate a certain culture. Is this all making sense? Are we good? Are you guys? I'm just laying a found work for where, where I'm wanting to go. This is a little bit of digging before we can plant, so to speak. If we carry over the metaphor of the house, culture is kind of like the aesthetic of the house. I can walk into your house, and it's an eclectic mess, and you have stuff all over the place and a hundred different themes, and then you come up and tell me that your house is Joanna Gaines' farmhouse, 
you are not going to convince me that that is the case. If I don't see concrete countertops and white shiplap somewhere, I am not going to buy into the fact that your house is Joanna Gaines Farmhouse. Because you can't express or be intentional about communicating what culture you are or what aesthetic your house is. It's something that's subliminal, that's expressed without trying. Now, if you have watched Fixer Upper a hundred times and you can quote episodes word for word and I walk into your house and there's white shiplap and your house is brick but it's painted white and there's concrete countertops and your island stainless steel and there's little flint, uh, greenery and plants everywhere, then I'm going to be like, wow, this looks like Joanna Gaines threw up in here. <laughs> you ain't even going to have to, t- you're not going to have to tell me that. I'm just going to know because of the experience of walking into your house now you take that back over to the church i don't care if we say we're a generous church someone walks in and they they may or may not experience that and i'm not just saying about our church specifically i'm talking about church in general i have had churches tell me before that they are the most loving church there is and i've walked in this is a true story pastor told me expressed to me how loving his church was and i had other people tell me this church is just so loving they didn't know who i was and i walked into their church and i sat down i was early about 15 20 minutes early this wasn't a last second before the buzzer went off kind of thing and you ditch out right as soon as he says amen i walked in early and i stayed late and you want to know how many people talked to me zero no one said hello no one shook my hand but you're trying to convince me that your church is loving and your church is welcoming, but I walk in and my experience is completely different. I've had people and I've heard stories about a church got a new pastor and the congregation had never met the pastor before. And so what he did was he dressed up as a homeless person. He didn't take a shower for a couple of days. He dressed up in filthy, dirty clothes and he walked in and he sat down and nobody sat on the same row as him. Nobody greeted him. And when time for service to start, Some of the people were looking around and nobody saw where the pastor was at. He got up and walked like that to the pulpit and took his stuff off and he had clothes underneath and then he used that to preach his first message. He had two messages prepared. One for if they greeted him and they loved him anyway and one for if they didn't. And you can guess which one they got. Another pastor did something very similar. He went and he sat outside his church's front doors. He sat outside dressed up as a homeless person. He even got like the buggy the shopping cart. And see, that's another product of culture is the buggy. You know, we call it buggy. You know, I don't know about you, but there's like 500 different types of Coke, right? <laughs> you know, Pepsi's Coke. Dr. Pepper, that's Coke. Sprite's Coke. You know, if you go up north, it's soda pop or whatever. But anyway, <laughs> buggy. He got a little shopping cart of buggy, put a sign on it, filled it up with cans and different things like that. And he sat outside his church with his face covered, a fake beard on, and he looked homeless. And you know what his church did? He had people coming in, bringing him out cups of coffee, giving him $20, $50 bills, all this stuff. The whole time he was sitting out there, just pouring out. He had people coming out and saying, listen, you don't have to sit outside. You were welcome to come inside and join us. I mean, just constantly people inviting him to lunch afterwards. And so when he gets done, service starts, he comes out during worship, dressed like that, pulls his stuff off, and just boohoo's on the stage because of how his church, the culture of his church, treated someone 
homeless. That's amazing. But both of those are products of culture. And it's unintentional. You can't make that happen. It is an expression of the culture that you're a part of. I was uh, talking to a girl um, at Perkett's. I don't know. I'm not good with directions. Perkett's. Perkett's. A little ice cream yogurt shop, which is amazing, by the way. Go in there and you order a hot fudge sundae with extra hot fudge and caramel on top. So bad for you, but so good. So good. No wonder my stomach hurts sometimes. But anyway, <laughs> there's this there's this girl in there, and I'm obnoxious. I talk to everybody, whether they want me to or not. But this girl was in there, and I asked her if she went to Lee because she was college age, and she said, yes, she was graduating senior year. So I began a conversation. Well, what are you graduating with? And she is graduating with a degree in French. She wants to become a French teacher, a French college professor. You know her? <laughs> oh. <laughs> but anyway, she was graduating with a degree in French. And um, anyway, I asked her, you know, because this is what obnoxious people do. I asked her, I said, what's your favorite French expression? And she told me, and I said, great. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> and she said, it's translated in English. It says you've got a frog in your throat. You're going to have to help me out with this one. And she said, she said, well, it's the equivalent of saying you've, a cat has your tongue. Now think about that. I could say a cat's got your tongue, and everybody in here probably knows what that means. It means, are you at a loss for words? Are you rendered speechless? But that's a product of culture. And a frog in your throat is the equivalent in Fran France of being rendered speechless. It's a product of culture. What about this one? Because a lot of us are Southerners in here. What about this one? Bless their heart. <laughs> now, yeah, you all laugh because you know, even if you're not Southern, you've lived here long enough, you know that on surface level, bless your heart sounds like a good thing. But 99.9% .9 of the time, if someone is saying that to you, it has judgment and condescension like seeping out of it. It's like, bless your heart while I clutch my pearls. Oh. <laughs> you know, but that's a product of culture. And I could say that to some people who have never been to the South or from there, and they may not have any idea. That's like, that's like a pom-pom with a dagger in it. You know, it's like, I want you to think I like you while I cut you. <laughs> but those are products of culture. Are you beginning to see how pervasive this is so my question is when you look at the early church the first church the first post-resurrection church what is their culture and if i had to say one word it's this it's generosity it's giving generosity it's a culture of generosity now look people have used this to say the first church was communal and they had everything common and everybody sold their houses and all their property and everybody just... But that's not really what it's saying. At face value, without looking any further, that looks like what this passage is communicating. But what you have to understand about this particular passage is this is a descriptive generalization of what was going on in the first church. This is a 30,000-foot aerial view. It doesn't say from Tuesday to Friday this is what happened. This is over the entirety of the life of the early church, what was going on. In order to get a better explanation or a better definition of this passage and what is meant 
by their culture of generosity, you have to flip ahead a couple chapters. So if you want to follow me, Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. And we're going to read the end of 4 and just the beginning of 5. And yes, this is inclusive of Ananias and Sapphira because that story is awesome. (laughs) Anyway, verse 32. All the believers were in one heart and one mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. (laughs) Shouldn't laugh there. God help me. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you had and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Well, bless God. You know, we have a, we have a tendency... <laughs> We have a tendency to remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, there's something about God striking a couple people dead that just kind of sticks in your mind, isn't there? How would you like to start a church service off where the few people come up and get struck dead? (laughs) I'm not asking for that. Don't worry. I'm not asking God. You know, God, what would really get our church going? (laughs) That's not what I'm asking or communicating at all. But what I am saying is this. You know, I don't understand everything in Scripture. There are some things that I just look at God and I just scratch my head at. And this is one of them. I just, I scratch my head at this story every time I read it. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them is that I just don't understand God striking Ananias and Sapphira dead. I have ideas, but I don't have anything conclusive. But before we get to that, Let's, let's back up just a little bit. I want to explain they had everything common. If you follow the passage of this scripture, one thing that you're going to see is it says from time to time, people sold houses or possessions to distribute to those that had a need. It doesn't say that everybody did it. And it doesn't say that it was expected or required. It's amazing that people did it. And I'm not taking away from their generosity. But what I am wanting to communicate is that for 
a long time and quite often I have heard people approach this and talk about a poverty gospel or talk about not having anything or even I've even heard this passage from Acts 2 utilized to try to push communism or socialism. That is not what's going on. What you have is you have a culture of generosity that is so pervasive and so incredibly powerful that people in that realize that nothing that they have is theirs to begin with. It all belongs to God, and they're just simply stewards of that which ultimately belongs to God. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and owns the hills under the cattle. The earth is his and the fullness thereof. Everything ultimately belongs to God. You say, no, I work for my money. Well, how do you have the power and the physical ability to work? You say, it was my intellect or my shrewd business dealings. Well, where did you get them from? I mean, no matter how you trace it or how you slice it, I received an inheritance from a dead uncle. Well, how did they get their money? And how did you get in that family and receive that connection? And how did God arrange the circumstances and put it in the mind of your uncle to leave his estate to you? It always, always, always flows back to God. You are nothing more than a steward and a manager of what belongs to God. And until we see it that way, we are ever forever going to be stingy and greedy because we think that something somehow belongs to us. No, everything belongs to God. Your intellect, your breath. It all belongs to God. And the early church had a little bit of a comprehension of this, and they treated their stuff as belonging to God. And so therefore, the culture of generosity was so prevalent that people, being the fruit of that generosity, realized that they had more than enough. And so they gave up what they did not need so that they could bless those that did not have what they did need. That's generosity. It wasn't about just taking away everybody, everybody's stuff. It was about making sure that nobody had a need. It was about making sure that nobody went hungry. It was about making sure that nobody didn't have a place to sleep. It was about making sure that people were taken care of. That, that, that was the point. And the culture of generosity created that. And a fruit of that generosity was Joseph or Barnabas. He comes along and he sells a field. It doesn't say he sold all of his fields. It doesn't say he sold the only field he had. It doesn't say that he sold his house and his field. That might be the case, but we don't know. So we don't have the authority to read that into the text. He sold a field and he took the money and he gave it to the apostles. This is the equivalent of him selling a field and taking the overflow of that money and giving it to the church, trusting that the church was smart enough and godly enough to distribute it to who had need. And I think sometimes we kind of lose that. I think sometimes we kind of lose that. Sometimes I think that we think that when we give, that we need to have our fingers in all the places that that money goes rather than just trusting the church that we're a part of. And I've always said this. I've always thought this and maybe not communicated it enough. If you ever get in a position and I'm not just saying this for the people here because people are going to watch this video online. If you ever get in a position where you don't trust the church that you're a part of well enough with your money, then go to a different church. I mean, I, I'm serious. If you don't have enough respect for the leadership of the church that you're a part of to handle a few dollars, then why are you letting them handle the spiritual well-being of your soul? Go to a different church. Because it may be that you're in the wrong one to begin with. That was a side note.
Joseph sells a field, gives it to the apostles. They distribute the money accordingly. One thing that I, I need to, to say here is this text that's dealing with generosity doesn't say anything about the tithe. And I have had a lot of people come to me and talk to me about the tithe, about 10%. And they would say, I don't know, believe in giving 10% because the New Testament doesn't talk about 10%. And then I say, well, let's back up a second and let's look at this in light of the whole Bible because you cannot use one passage of Scripture to contradict anything else. You have to look at it in light of the whole Bible. People that bring that argument will also say that they believe that tithe is under the law. And I say, no, tithe was actually given preceding the law. And one of our earliest examples of that was Abraham tithing to Melchizedek, who was a pre-incarnate form of Jesus Christ. He gave 10%. Tithe pre-existed the law. So we can't really use that tithe's a part of the law and the law's been done away with to get rid of the, the tithe and the idea of the tithe. The second thing is, is that while the New Testament doesn't directly deal with tithe, it everywhere and always presupposes it. And one thing that you have to remember is that the New Testament was written to Jews and Gentiles. Yes, Gentiles. However, the majority of the Gentiles that made up the early, early church were converted from what was called God-fearers, God who were people that believed in the Jewish religion but weren't able to go through the proselytization to become full-on Jews, and they kind of stood on the outskirts. And it created an extremely fertile ground for the apostles to share the gospel with because they were able to buy right into that because they already had the framework Judaic concept to buy into. So the Gentiles who had a, Jew, a good understanding of Jewish law and the Jews who had a really good understanding of Jewish law would ha already have had an idea and a belief in the tithe. So it wouldn't have been necessary to everywhere always redefine the tithe if they already knew that it was existent. But Paul says, when you do take up collection, do it on the first day of the week when you're gathered together. He talks to a, a, a pre, kind of insinuates the tithe to the Philipp in his letter to the Philippians, in his letter to the Corinthians, in his letter to the Romans, so on and so forth. So everywhere it's presupposed. Do you see that? The reason I'm saying that is because personally, I believe in the tithe. I believe in the tithe. I believe in giving 10% of all of your income to God. The first fruits, 10%, right off the top, give it to God. Amen. <laughs> now, why am I laboring that so hardcore? The reason that I'm laboring that is because a lot of times what happens is we say that we don't believe that we're in a situation where we can financially afford to tithe. That's a lie. It's a lie from the pit of hell. What it actually is doing is it is actually creating a lordship on your life of money rather than God. You have began to allow mammon and the love for money to dictate your life and your decisions rather than God. And you are essentially saying, God, you're Lord of my life in everywhere except my finances. And that's a dangerous place to be. Before I continue, I want to give you a little piece of pastoral advice. Pastoral advice. If right now you are not tithing, but you hear the words coming out of my mouth and you say, I see and I believe that it's biblically necessary. Here's what I encourage you to do. If your faith is not at a place where you can say, I'll just cut 10% right off the top. If your faith's not there, here's what I encourage you to do. I'm serious. Starting next month, from wherever you hear this, I would give 
1%. That's easy. That's $1 on every 100. Anybody can do that. 1%. And then the following month, 2%. And then the following month, 3%. And so on and so forth until you get to 10%. My wife and I did this. I'm serious. There was a time... God told us that faith needed to stay at home. And so we went from a two-income household where we both made 50% of the income that was required for our existence to a one-income household where we weren't making as much as we needed to make. And we did not tithe for a little while. And we were extremely upset about it. So we made a decision. that It was in December when we had the conversation. We made a decision. Come January, we're given 1%. February, 2%. March, 3%. And so on and so forth until we get to 10%. And then we're never looking back. And we did that. And I will tell you this. When you do that, your finances will add up even if you do not see how they will add up because you have made God Lord of your finances and he promises that he will provide and he will give according to his excess, not according to your lack. Tithing is necessary. Now, I'm not being, what's that? Next month starts Thursday. So see, see, good timing. But anyway, the reason I'm bringing all this up is because I want to be pastoral and I want to help you. I don't need your money. I don't. The church doesn't need your money. If God wants it to stay open, it'll stay open. If he wants to shut it down, it'll shut down whether you give, it, give to it or not. I don't need your money, neither does God. But I care about your soul. And I want you to hear this very clearly. If you do not trust God with your tithe, you are operating under the same spirit as Ananias and Sapphira. And if you think, here's getting a little bit deeper, and here, this is going to cut a little bit, so forgive me. If you think that 10% and your tithe is all that you should give and you give 10% and you're free from any generosity obligations or expectations, you are still operating under the same spirit of Ananias and Sapphira. Think about this. Ananias and Sapphira go and they sell a field. They sell a field. And then they sit down and conspired together. Look, I can already see how this played out. This is my imagination at work. They sit down, Sapphira cooked fried chicken and green beans and <laughs> some collard greens. Green beans and collard greens, that would be too much. Corn and collard greens, we'll go that way. And they, they finish eating and, you know, they're, they're fat and bloated because they ate too much. And they slide their plates out of the side and they say, okay, let's talk about how much we can give and how much we can keep and they still believe that that's how we sold the field, how much we sold the field for. And Sapphira probably offers up a suggestion and Ananias says, we're not keeping enough though. We're not keeping enough. And then he offers up a suggestion and she says, do you think anybody will believe that we got cheated that bad and it's back and forth until finally they both settle on an amount? And they say, okay, we can give this much and they will think that that's how much we actually sold the field for. Some people will probably talk and say we got cheated, but, but they'll believe that we sold the field for this much. Okay, deal. And then Ananias says, Sapphira, look, here's what I want you to do. Tomorrow morning, I want you to go get your nails done. I want you to go get your nails done. I want you to get French tips. Here's a little bit of the money we're keeping, okay? Go get French tips. You know, I know you've been wanting them. Go get, maybe go get a hair perm too. I don't know. But look, just go have yourself a minute. That way you can show up to church late, all right? And I'm going to go to church first thing. 
and I'm going to give them the money and make a t- try not to make too much of a to-do, but I'm going to make enough to where everybody in the congregation sees that we're following like Barnabas did and that we are super generous with our stuff too, okay? And then you can come in and in your little small talk and gossip, because everybody knows you're a gossiper, in your little gossip, you can mention how much the field was sold for And then they'll be like, wait, that's exactly the same. And she wasn't here when he gave it. So it'll just be a confirmation. And then everybody will believe, look at how generous Ananias is. Look at how sacrificial Sapphira is. And everybody will just be tooting our horn and we'll look like great Christians. And you know what, Sapphira? I bet you'll be voted to be head of the women's ministry after this. (laughs) And you know what? I'm going to be the next lead deacon. And then Ananias shows up. You know what? Ananias shows up. And he walks up. And I could just imagine he's nudging a few people like, hey, pay attention. (laughs) Yeah, pay attention. All right. He walks up and he lays that money at Peter's feet. And he probably makes such a to-do about it. He's probably like, man, this field, it was our best. It was the back 40, the best field we had. I, I just seen that that person over there, they hadn't eaten in a couple of days and they had a need. So I just, I wanted, I wanted to be generous. And Peter just looks at him and he says, why? You're not lying to me. You're not lying to them. You're lying to God. And here's the thing. Ananias gave like 50%. He gave half, five times as much as norm- most of us give. Five times as much as most of us give, and he still got struck dead. And then Sapphira waddles in with her French tips and her perm and fancy clothes, looking like she just got out of the Gucci store. And she walks to the front, and guess what? Peter just asked her, how much you sell that field for? This much? Oh, yeah. Where's Ananias at? He was supposed to be here. Peter says, you're guilty of the same sin. See those guys back there? They just buried your husband. Sorry. <laughs> the price was wrong. Anyway. <laughs> In his best Bob Barker impersonation. <laughs> That's right, because that was the real price is right, not whatever garbage there is now. Sorry. Um, <laughs> anyway. Anyway. That's is a complete side note. I watch some of the old reruns of Prices Right every once in a while, and I just get blown away at some of the prices that stuff went for, and I'm, it makes you sick. Anyway, si- side conversation. <laughs> side conversation. But Ananias gets taken out, and she gets buried too. And guess what? Great fear falls on the church. And I'm like, I daggum reckon so. <laughs> There's you some Southern culture right there. I mean, somebody gets struck dead in a church service, and you know it was God. <laughs> Two things. Someone gets struck dead by God, we are going to attribute it to every single medical diagnosis that we possibly can. I'm going to say, that wasn't God. They just had a weak heart. That wasn't God. They just had an aneurysm. Like, because we just try to remove God from the equation altogether. And you know what the other thing is? Somebody sells a field and comes in with 50%. We don't ask them what God told them to give. We just say thanks. Appreciate it because we care more about the financial gift than we do about the spiritual condition of their souls in church today. We do. We see a building that needs maintenance. We see a, you know, a ta- property tax. We see, you know, 
the need to expand the sanctuary or redecorate the children's church or, you know, gas for the vehicles or repairs or whatever. And we're, it starts adding up. And so we, somebody gives 50 percent, even though God told them to give 100. We don't care. We're just like, thanks. Thanks for your gift. We can use that because we no longer care about people's souls anymore. We just care about appearances. We're all about that superficial. And I'm not saying you guys. I'm just saying in general, me too. I get caught up in this. You look at bills and necessity and needs, and somehow people get dropped off. People become nothing but nickels and noses. <laughs> Butts and bucks. I mean, budgets, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's serious. That's what church gets reduced down to is metrics, and people become numbers and giving units. Serious. That is actually a term that is used in church growth conversations they talk about families as giving units. And it's disgusting. It's disgusting. And that's an indictment against the church because it's no longer about a culture of generosity. It's just about getting people to give. And I don't care if we have to beat it up, beat them up and convince them of the necessity of the tithe and make them scared that they're going to hell or if we have to pity them, like twist their arm into making them feel sorry for the church oh if you don't give we're going to close in six months and just who cares if you're going to close in six months then just have a hoorah and give every dime you got to the poor and go out with a bang in three months instead of six i get so frustrated when listen i have I've had conversations and conversations. I've been a part of Fresh Start initiatives. I have been a part of church revitalization programs and training and all of those things. And what every single person will tell you that has actually studied the one common denominator for a dying church is a scarcity mindset. A scarcity mindset to try and conserve and hoard everything that you have. Because when you stop giving, you stop sowing. And anybody that knows anything about a farmer, if a drought comes and a farmer has one bag of grain, they've got two choices. They can eat or they can sow. And if they eat, they're going to die. Starvation will set in. But if they sow, they may go hungry for a little while, but there's a possibility that they can render a crop that will sustain them for years to come rather than just days or weeks and in churches it's the same exact way even if you're left with just a bag of grain you can sow or you can hoard and if you hoard you will die as individuals it's the same way you've got a strict budget you can give and be generous or you can conserve and if you conserve you will die it may delay the inevitable a few weeks or months, but ultimately it will come back. And that's not God being mean or unjust. That is just one of the principles of kingdom that God will reward and bless and pour out on you for generosity. That's the only area in all of Scripture, Malachi 3, where he says, test me, prove me, try me. See if I won't honor your generosity. And so as a church, not just as an individual believing in the tithe, as a church, we tithe. 10% of everything we get, we tithe and send to the Church of God denomination. Now, let me say this. On video, right here, I do not believe that the Church of God is perfect. I don't. 
because there's people involved. I don't believe Faith Memorial is perfect because there's people involved. But the necessity of giving 10% is not about what the Church of God does with the money. Now, what they do doesn't really go to cover salaries. That's a common misconception. What it actually does is it funds like 180 Bible schools, uh, missionaries in 120 different countries. Um, the Golden Triangle, the bulletin that I gave out, a lot of the money goes to fund that and efforts to rescue children from sex slavery, on and on and on and on. And you can actually research what does the Church of God tithe of tithe go to. But that's not the point. The point is, is even if they were doing things that I didn't like with the money, it's not about them. It's about me fulfilling my responsibility to trust God and make him Lord of my finances. And it's about this church fulfilling its responsibility to make God the Lord of this church's finances. And if we don't, then we are going to rob ourselves of a blessing. We are going to rob ourselves of God's provision financially. Moving on. Moving on. So, Ananias and Sapphira, they didn't, they didn't tithe. They, didn't, they lied, I'm sorry. They, they did tithe. They went five times above that. But they lied. And they were struck dead. Anytime deceit enters into the equation, death is involved. Now, I know theirs was a little bit more dramatic because they were physically struck dead. I can only attribute this. I don't want to leave this passage without dealing with this. I'm wrapping up, I promise. I promise. I don't want to de- leave this passage without dealing with this briefly. I don't know why God struck Ananias and Sapphira dead. I don't. I have a couple of ideas. Because people do this and far worse in our day. But here's my ideas. My first idea, which I think is probably the most likely, is anytime you have a heightened outpouring of the Spirit of God, it's a high risk and reward situation. The closer you are to the fullness of outpouring and the fullness of God's presence, the higher the reward, the higher the risk. I think about Aaron's sons, uh, whether Nadab and Abihu, maybe. Anyway, um, they go and they offer strange fire to the Lord and they're struck dead. But they got to go in there and offer incense to God and experience his presence. They were close to the Holy of Holies but there was a high-risk-reward situation. And I think that this is like that. Anytime there's a heightened outpouring of God's presence, there's a high risk and there's a high reward. You may get your, yourself healed by someone's shadow, but you may also get struck dead for lying to God. So, anyway, I just think that that's, that's a little bit of the situation that's going on here. And then the second thing is I think that it gives us a spiritual picture of what happens when we try to cheat God. Death will be involved. Now, that being said, I'm not t- telling you that if you don't give today that God's going to kill you. I want, that <laughs> I, want that, I want that clarified, okay? Because some people could say, <laughs> some people will say, that preacher at Faith Memorial Church, he said, if I didn't tithe, God was going to kill me. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm also not saying if you don't tithe, God's going to break your washing machine. I'm not saying any of that. All I'm saying is that if you don't tithe, if you don't give and operate according to generosity and allow God to be the Lord of your finances, you will not, will not experience the fullness of his blessing. 
There is just no way around that. You, it rains on the just and the unjust. You may still get some common grace and a blessing here and there, but you will not experience the fullness of his blessing if you do not make him Lord of your finances. That's just all there is to it. Amen? Y'all forgive me? Everybody mad at me? 